Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome back to episode number 134 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning, Matt. Morning, Mark. Good to be back in the saddle again. It's nice to be back. Yeah, I listened to your and Nick's discussion last week and thoroughly enjoyed it. So, uh, and maybe I should be gone more often. We were getting <laughs> into it, weren't we? You were. You were. Entertaining. Thank you. Very entertaining. Thank you. Um, I'm sure we're going to get to uh, the big news that most people want to hear about, which is the increased market volatility to start off the year. But uh, before we begin, I just want to take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year, which is the same for the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on Friday, January 21st. Uh, So this is year to date for 2022. And the data is from Coifin. Got it. S&P 500 index down 7.73% for the year. Uh, Dow Jones Industrial Index down 5.7% for the year. NASDAQ Composite Index down 9.53% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 Index down 11.5% for the year. The Vanguard International uh, ETF X United States only down 2.33% for the year. So uh, international equities uh, outperforming on a relative basis to U.S. equities. Uh, Three-month T-bill yield currently sitting at 0.17%. Two-year Treasury yield currently at 1%. Wow. Uh, The 10-year Treasury yield is at 1.77%. So this is the first time in a while, Matt, we've seen the two-year Treasury yield uh, be at or above 1%. You know, for a long time, it was hovering between that 0.4 to 0.6 or 0.7%. And now we're starting to see a increase in uh, short-term yields here. We are the... uh they would say that the curve is flattening. And what that means is the shorter term rates are getting closer to longer term rates. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean? Right. So if you think about that, you know, uh, longer dated bonds. So bonds that have a longer maturity Mm -hmm. should have a higher interest rate because there's more risk with holding that debt for a longer period of time locked into that interest rate. There's a longer period of time for some bad stuff to happen. Right. That's right. And short term rates should be lower because there's not as much risk. Right. So you're getting compensated by buying longer dated bonds Mm -hmm. than the shorter dated bonds. But when you have the two year Treasury yield starting to creep up faster than the 10 year Treasury yield, to me, that's the bond market saying, hey, there's more risk right now in the short term than there is in the long term. Yeah. And it's saying that there's more risk, you know, short term to the economy. And, mm-hmm. you know, the Fed getting this interest rate cycle right. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and we'll, it, it's related to market volatility. You just want to go into it? Yeah. So obviously it's been, a you know, the biggest news headline and current events from the past week is the market volatility. And it's been a rocky start to U.S. equities. But looking back at history, Matt, it's not that abnormal for a midterm year. Um, 
you know, and, and I wouldn't be surprised to see further weakness before things start to get better. Um, you know, there's a, there's a really good link and maybe we can link to this next week or on the show notes somewhere, but from uh, Fisher Investments that shows the performance of the stock market in every midterm year. Mm-hmm. And typically what you see is the nine months leading up or the 10, 10 months, whatever it is, leading up to the midterms in the fall tends to be weaker than normal for the S&P 500. Um, but after the market gets certainty after the elections tends to rise and run into Q4. So, you know, the question that I know people are going to be thinking of, well, you know, why don't you guys just go to cash for the first nine months of the year before the election? It's because not every single year plays out like that. And there's a risk in doing that as well. There's a big risk of being out of the market. And, uh, you know, I, I, I might sound during the middle of a sell off. This this is going to sound interesting, but. I still think this is going to be an okay year for the market. Mm-hmm. You know, um, uh, what's happening right now, listeners, in my opinion, is there's a big dislocation between underlying fundamentals and what has caused this sell-off. And when I say underlying fundamentals, I'm talking about actual earnings and the actual fundamentals of the companies that are a part of these indices like the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ. And people tend to forget that these periods of sell-offs, and this tends to happen every 18 to 24 months where we get a very quick double-digit sell-off, this is the sacrifice you have to put up with and endure in order to get good longer-term rates of return in the market. You can't have your cake and eat it too. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be periods of time where the market sells off and we are in the fear-driven phase of the Mm sell-off. And what I mean by that in plain English listeners is people are selling just because someone else is selling. And that's never a good plan. That is never good just to follow the fear side of it. Because just as much as fear is here today, we could be in February or March in the opposite, the greed side. Everyone's rushing back in. You will have that happen. Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel like it now, but it will. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, again, it feels worse because it hasn't happened in a little while. Um, and, and and this is normal for this stuff to happen. Typically, you get one or two, um, you know, double digit drawdowns in, in the markets every year. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I, I guess I would have more, let's say, pause for caution if I felt that underlying fundamentals, especially for the names that we own for clients within our practice, Mark, weren't as good as I feel that they are, I might have a different stance about this. Yeah. And, and, and who knows, maybe we will get some of that from earnings season. Uh, that's just around the corner. Well, yeah. that we're in right now, but for the companies that we own, but, um, and, and, and we're always adaptable to change, right? Absolutely. Um, but as of right now, I think it's, it's more inflation driven narrative, interest rate driven and narrative. Uh, even though if you look back at history, you know, when the Fed is raising rates, stocks tend to do pretty well. I'm just not in the camp that I'm going to sell just because other people are selling. And this this tends to happen every every couple of years. Uh, I'm also not in the camp of following people that are calling for 50, 60 percent corrections in the market like you see, because obviously, obviously the financial news media is playing into the sensationalism uh, of these periods of time in the market. And I would, you know, focus on what you can control. Most people that have money in the stock market don't need it anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Let the market play its way out. And over time, the market will resume 
It's it's yeah. upward trajectory. Have we gotten a market in turmoil yet from we have CNBC? Not. We have not because no. I've been monitoring it because it tends to be a canary in the coal mine. Yep. But what we did get last week on Friday was the front of Drudge. Mm -hmm. So um, Drudge News is a news aggregator. It's like in the top 20 websites that are visited. And um, at the very, very top, the stock market made it. And that tends to be near, historically, a, a short-term market bottom. Mm -hmm. So again, you look at for those anecdotal evidence that once this stuff starts to hit mainstream media, that's when the fear side of it tends to grip. And again, you know, if I felt the underlying fundamentals of stuff that we own for our practice and our clients wasn't good and that these corrections were more justified, I have a completely different stance about this. But there's a disconnect, and that tells me that, in my opinion, this is more shorter term. Could last another couple of months. It could. Mm -hmm. But I don't see this lasting the, the, the rest of the year. Yeah. I don't. Okay. Uh, well, moving on to tweets, articles, and research from the week. The first thing I had, Matt, was a tweet from uh, Mike Zaccardi showing uh, how much U.S. stocks beat international stocks uh, last year in 2021. So okay. he tweeted uh, a chart, and he said that U.S. stocks beat ex-U.S. stocks by more than 15% this year. And this was, again, for 2021. And I think it's important to highlight this concept of what I call relative strength, Matt, because we use this in combination with absolute strength at our firm here. So, you know, when we talk about absolute strength, we want to own securities that are going up, right? That's not that hard of a concept to grasp. But we also want uh, companies displaying relative strength, meaning relative to other companies or relative to an index over the long term, we want to see going up as well. So, you, you know, when I say relative, you, comparing U.S. stocks performance relative to international stocks, comparing the S&P 500 relative to gold. Yeah. So let's right? say like the current correction, let's say the average stock is down 10 percent, but these stocks that you're talking about are only down five, it's a lot less for you to come back and break even when the recovery happens. Right, exactly. So um, so we use this concept of relative strength. And, you know, going back to my point I'm trying to make here is we get the question a lot, hey, why is international exposure so such a small percentage of, of my portfolio? And this is why, you know, you just pull up a chart of, you know, U.S. stocks relative to international stocks, and you can see the massive underperformance of international stocks uh, over the past decade. And we could be at a turning point. We could not be. But until that turns around, you know, I want to have my eggs in the baskets that are outperforming. Right? Absolutely. Over the long term. I'm not Ab talking about short term, one year, even two years. Sure. I mean, I think it's a great way of saying it. I mean, if you look at the underlying fundamentals of the U.S. economy, and let me just pick on Europe for an example. The underlying fundamentals of Europe right now, inherently a lot more unemployment, inherently a lot less economic growth. They'll be lucky to probably hit 2% GDP in the Eurozone this year. And so when you look at the underlying fundamentals, that doesn't get me excited from an investment standpoint that their stock market in general is going to be continuing to outperform the U.S. Could it? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But the underlying fundamentals, you already have a, a big headwind to overcome, right? Mm -hmm. And I just think that when you kind of look at that, having the ability to discriminate and overweight the U.S. compared to international has definitely given us a strategic advantage. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. 
Um, next was an article uh, written by Keith Lerner on MarketWatch titled, What Happens When the S&P 500 Climbs More Than 25% in a Year? Um, and it, this chart shows that mid-teen gains usually follow. So for those of you that are watching, we'll have Jenna put this up on the screen uh, for people to see. But um, it says the S&P 500 just closed out its best year since 2019, rising 28.79%, including dividends. Gains of this magnitude are rare. Prior to this year, the S&P 500 has gained 25% or more in just 17 times since 1950. The table shows all the years that followed gains of 25% or more. The following year was positive 82% of the time for a solid average gain of 14%. Of course, anything can happen in 2022, but as we look toward the new year, it's important to consider that outsized gains have historically been followed by further gains more often than not. And I think it was just interesting to to read this and bring this up now since we are in a correction territory. I think this morning that S&P finally hit a, a 10% drawdown from uh, peak to where it is now. Yep. Um, that... You know, like you said, we could be in a completely different market environment three months from now and everything's hunky dory and we continue the rise higher. People forget these times, Mark, so quickly. I mean, you have the two guiding emotions in investing of fear and greed. And when you're in the middle in grips of the sell off, you feel like it's going to continue to perpetuate. There's no end in sight. I need to protect my principal. I need to sell. And what have you always said about panic selling? You have to get two things right. Mm hmm. You have to get your timing on the sale right. And what's the harder one? Get back in the market. Timing when you get back in. And, you know, ultimately that tends to not be fruitful. And I'm just in this camp when you look at the statistics, like you're talking about, that 82% of the time following such a positive year in the market, that's saying that underlying fundamentals and either the economy, the underlying financials of these stocks are good. That tends to have follow through. And with the interest rate environment you're in right now, I want to pull all these people. Honestly, where, where are you going to put this money? I, I want to hear you. Because mm -hmm. all it says to me right now is you think you're smarter than everyone else in the room and that you can pick this bottom compared to everyone else. And we know that's not the case. Yeah. And a lot of people selling right now are going to end up buying back at higher prices. Yeah, for sure. Like how we it's going to work. How it works on every sell off. works. Last thing I had was a tweet by our friend Ryan Dietrich. Um, <clears throat> he says, uh, as good as it was for stocks in 2021, it was just as bad for bonds. In fact, Is he reading my notes ahead of time, Jenna. <laughs> are you talking about this next? You'll find out. Oh, I guess you are. The first thing you had. Look at that. This could be great. Uh, in fact, this will be only the fourth time in history that uh, ag has been negative. So... I did some digging on this even further, Matt, to see what the S&P 500's performance was each year that the AGG index was negative. And for those who, I am may, all ears. who may not be familiar with uh, the AGG or AG, it's the Bloomberg Barclays uh, Aggregate Bond Index, and it's a broad fixed income index. Um, it's made up of government bonds, U.S. investment grade corporate bonds, and mortgage-backed securities. And before the financial crisis, everyone, it was called the Lehman Brothers Aggregate Bond Index, and by far was the most tracked aggregate bond index out there. But yeah, before but the financial crisis, it was the Lehman Brothers. Until Lehman went yep. away. Yep. R.I.P. Um, <laughs> make myself chuckle sometimes. Um, 
And, okay, so it happened obviously uh, this past year in 2021. Uh, the Bloomberg aggregate bond index was down 1.7%, and the S&P 500 was up 26.89%. percent hmm in 2013, the uh, ag was down 2% and S&P 500 was up 29.6%. In 99, the ag index was down 0.8%. S&P 500 was up 19.5%. And then the only outlier, Matt, was in 94, the ag index was down almost 3% and the S&P 500 was down 1.5%. That was a rising interest rate year. Yep. So uh, interesting to kind of see, but, you know, again, very small sample size, but typically goes back to the old adage of, you know, when stocks are doing well, bonds aren't doing as good and vice versa, uh, other than that year in 1994 where they were both down. Now talk about what's happening year to date. Yeah, you're seeing a lot of the same stuff. Yeah, bonds are down. Stocks are down. Stocks are down. Correlations are getting closer to one. I would honestly say for the beginning three weeks of this year, there's been nowhere to hide out. Yeah. Unless, Generally speaking. Yeah. Yeah. Unless you're in cash, which is great. But if you're in cash for a long time with inflation where it is, then you're down. You're still down. Yep. Right. You're you're losing your purchasing power. Well, let me build upon this narrative about bonds because we, we disproportionately discuss stocks on mm -hmm. our podcast. Okay. So uh, not knowing that you were going to discuss this, here's my piece. This is a tweet by Matthew Miskin. He's a CFA. I follow him on Twitter. His tweet said this, the U.S. Ag Bond Index has now seen a peak to trough decline drawdown of negative 4.3%. The date on this tweet is the 19th of January. He says this is the seventh drawdown this size over the last 20 years, Mark. He then says this, when high quality bonds are down between four to 5%, historically, this represents a better entry point than time to exit. And he shows, he shows a chart from FactSet. Now here's my comments. Mark, just like a lot of stocks recently, there's been a lot of negativity surrounding bonds, pretty much all asset classes year to date besides cash. So for the ag index, we've just experienced the seventh largest drawdown on record in the past 20 years. I wanted to note this for two reasons. One, the pain might not be over for bonds with the threat of rising interest rates. And two, this is another reminder that investors can lose money in bonds given we have been in a bond bull market for approximately the last 12 years up until this point. Mm -hmm. And so there is investment risk there. And I want to bring that to the forefront because I still think it's a misconception by the general investing public that stocks have risk, bonds do not, and that's not necessarily true. And I just want to have the reminder again about that. Yeah, yeah, that's, you know, that's the thing of, you know, someone comes to you and it's like, hey, I want, you know, seven, eight percent returns per year, but I don't want any risk. And, you know, we look at them and say that doesn't it doesn't really exist. Yeah. Or, or someone sits there and says, you know, they see the average return of an investment, that three year number, that five year number, that 10 year number. Guess what? 
To earn that, you have to endure times like you're seeing right now. Mm -hmm. You have to endure February and March of 2020. You have to endure the fourth quarter of 2018. Yeah. That's, yeah. It's the way it works. Yeah, you can't and have I think, one without the other. Yeah, and another important thing that's not really talked about is uh, the market environment that you start investing or that you start working with a certain advisor has a really large impact on your psyche and how you view the markets. Because if you're a young kid out of college, you're in your first job, and you're in a, a really crappy market environment and there's a bear market for a year or two, you're just going to like you're automatically always going to anchor to the fact that like you started during bad times and you think bad times are going to happen all the time. Sure. Or vice versa. If you start during good times and you're like, oh, this is going to be hunky dory and this is easy to do. Yep. So I think, you know, based on when you start, it has a really big impact on how you view the markets going forward. Hopefully not for the rest of your life, but for the first couple of years you start. Great point. Yeah. So. Great point. All right. I got two more. These will be a little quicker, but this next one might stoke a little conversation between you and I. Okay. So I saw a tweet on January 16th from Brian Sullivan. He's a news anchor at CNBC. And um, the title of this piece that I'm going to cover is we need to keep an eye on consumer spending given recent inflation. And here's Brian's tweet. Quote, today's live electricity prices in New England are $230 per megawatt hour. January of 2020, pre-COVID, they averaged $26 per megawatt hour. It's just one day, but today electricity prices in New England are 700% higher than two years ago. Gonna be some sticker shock. The reason I bring this up is... I do think the state or the status of the American consumer is very strong right now on paper. Wage gains, savings have been double digits for quite some time, paying down debt, being responsible. Um, the one thing that we need to keep a close eye out on is making sure this is not going to impact their consumer spending for the next couple of quarters. Mm -hmm. And I think these input costs, things like utility bills, is definitely something we need to keep an eye on. Yeah. Any comments? Yeah, I think it's, uh, <clears throat> it's interesting because inflation is always uh, very generalized. And when it comes to impacting people's personal lives, um, like me and you, like this this inflation in New England in terms of energy power doesn't affect us, right? No. Um, you know, I met with a client uh, last week and we were talking about oil prices and they're like, it hasn't really affected us because we don't really do much like long-term traveling. So you don't experience, individuals don't experience all the inflation that's getting put out there into the world uh, by economists and by the government. Um, you know, for example, if you have electric cars, you're not really impacted by the increasing price of oil right now, right? That's right. I mean, I think the perfect example I could use is heating oil, okay? So in the Northeast listeners, a lot of people heat their homes with the delivery of heating oil to their house. What a lot of people don't understand is most people lock those prices in during the summer for the next season. Mm-hmm. Now, what gets financial headlines when it's been a more than average colder winter around February and March is, oh, my gosh, heating oil prices, they're spiking. Yep. But they don't really sit there and say what you just mentioned. Right. Which is there might be some people 
who didn't lock prices in and took a risk and are now paying higher. But the majority of people locked their prices in over the summer before, and they're not subject to that. Right. You know, it's the same thing with like airlines. Mm -hmm. Airlines do a lot of hedging with jet A fuel. Mm -hmm. um, and notable airlines that have the most impactful hedging programs are ones like Delta and Southwest, where, you know, they don't really, they hedge out so much, they don't see as much of that price volatility. But yep. that's never talked about. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. So I think when people think about inflation and they're going crazy, everything is so much more expensive. It's like, okay, let's take a, a step back and see how much it really impacts your life based on your lifestyle. Yeah. Right. You know, there's yeah. certain um, certain foods that have gone up in price, but maybe you don't eat all those foods, so it doesn't impact you as much as the media is making it. Yeah, out you to might be. not be eating the, the the top cut beef. Right. You know. Right. So yeah, just wanted to throw that out there. Appreciate that. All right, this is my last one uh, piece I have turned over back to you for the financial planning topic of the week in a moment. But I saw this tweet, and this is the tag of this Twitter follower. It's at Lady Boast. Okay. okay. And um, so this is what her tweet said on January 19th. If your financial plan isn't something you can stick with through market volatility... You don't have a plan. <clears throat> you have an idea. Yeah, it's good timing on this. I love I saw that and I'm like, it's a good way for me to end my segment. Yeah, it is. And I think it was, uh, who said it, Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger, that if you can't deal with a 40 or 50% haircut, then you shouldn't be investing in stocks or something like that. I mean, it's an extreme, it's, but it's, it's, but an it's extreme, accurate. But it just, yeah, it's when you're in a single security of. and no right. diversification, yeah, that's yeah. an accurate statement. Yep. So, yeah, no, that's good. No, that's good I, I, saw, I, I thought she had a great post there. I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. But again, when you are in the midst of these severe sell offs, it feels worse than it actually is. It feels like it's going to last for a long time. I get that. Mm -hmm. We just got to think past the next couple of weeks and couple of months because it's not always going to be this way. Right. Yeah. And again, it was like this, this is deja vu bringing me back to February and March of 2020. This is why uh, I love this podcast. Where it felt it felt like the world was going to end. We are the voice of reason right now in the financial markets. Yep. So I like that. Maybe that's our new advertising line. Like it. Catch that, Jenna. Um, financial planning topic of the week comes from an article in Forbes written by Robert Farrington titled Grandparent 529 Plans Get a Boost from the New FAFSA Form. Here we or go. Fa FAFSA. Yeah. FAFSA. Say that Say 10 that times fast. Yeah. <laughs> Listeners, you can tell Mark and I spend yeah. a lot of time together. Um, so he says, uh, one of the most popular tools for college savings is the 529 plan, which allows individuals to save and invest funds in an account that grows tax-free and comes with tax-free distributions for qualified education expenses. Many states also offer tax incentives for saving into 529 plans. And I just want to make a comment here, Matt, that... I think a lot of people are unaware of this, the state tax incentives for contributing to 529 plans. So I want people that if you are contributing to 529 plans, uh, check with your state guidelines on the tax incentives of contributing to a 529 plan for a child or a grandchild, um, because most states allow for some or all of the contribution to be deductible on your tax return for the year that you make the contribution. Mm -hmm. Um 
continues by saying uh, saving in 529 plans is not just limited to a student's parents, as many grandparents have used 529s to support their grandchildren's education as well. However, while distributions from grandparent-owned 529 plans may not be taxable income, the distributions currently do count as income to receive it to the receiving student for purposes of financial aid calculations, which can subsequently decrease the student's financial aid eligibility. And because income is counted more aggressively than assets, income from a grandparent-owned 529 plan can actually be treated even more harshly than assets in parent-owned 529 plans, unless the funds were used for just the last final year or two of college after the FAFSA form was filed. I was just going to say that, by the way. Mm-hmm. However, this is set to change thanks to legislation passed in late 2020 that, when implemented, will no longer require gifts from grandparents and distributions from grandparent-owned 529 plans to be reported as student income on the FAFSA. Wow. It is still unclear as to when this will go into effect, but it will be a major benefit to students receiving assistance from grandparents. The new FAFSA change for grandparent-owned 529 plans can provide an opportunity to highlight the tax benefits of grandparents funding 529 plan accounts, both for students and the grandparents themselves, rather than gifting money directly to grandchildren. Uh, There must be a lot of people in Congress who are grandparents whose grandkids are about right, to go yeah, to college. Right, exa- yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's what, that's what your mind are, are automatically goes to, right? <laughs> Sorry. Um, so, yeah, so this is, I mean, it might not seem like that big of a change, but it is a, it is a, a, big, a change. big change because, you know, when I would talk to clients about this, I would say, hey, it, you know, it makes sense for the parent to own the 529 plan uh, because of this rule for, for grandparents. And uh, then everyone starts to freak out, but it, you are able to transfer ownership of 529 plans. So even if the grandparent starts it when the kid gets closer to college, you can transfer it to the parent's name sure. so that you don't get hit with that. But now uh, people won't have to do that anymore. I think it's awesome. So I um, think it's uh, something that's good. I remember I was talking to my mom about this actually the other week and so we were talking so we were talking about the fafsa and she said that today's in today's day and age it's much easier to fill out the fafsa form than it was back when i went to college and she said that her and my dad spent hours i bet it was disaster going through the fafsa form and it was just horrible and they've streamlined it and made it a lot easier and automated and that type of thing so good appreciate sue's feedback yeah me too me too um it's kind of all I had, Matt. Anything else you want to leave off uh, with listeners before we end it here? Last comment is about volatility, intraday volatility to be specific. And uh, we had an investment committee meeting this morning, which obviously, Mark, you led as our chief investment officer. And you reminded us that obviously, you know, during times like this, it's not uncommon to see drastic movements during uh, trading hours of 930 a.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern time. So don't be surprised if you uh, pull up the market in the morning and it's up or down big. And then by the time it closes at four, it's the complete opposite. Expect the next several weeks, as you said this morning, to continue to be volatile. That's not abnormal given the sell off we've had. And it'll work its way through the system. Yeah, it will. It will. Um yeah, I, I don't want to, you know, me and you are typically pretty optimistic going forward on markets and, and long term. Yes, totally still in that camp, just because look back at history, this stuff doesn't last forever. Um, 
But, you know, it things can always are, get worse right, before it gets better. Right. Things are kind of a mess right now in the short term. Yeah. And I think that there's that's been a lot of technical okay damage on the charts you mentioned this morning. Yeah, there's, you know, things just kind of look very sloppy. And like you said, if volatility like this remains elevated uh, and we look at the VIX for volatility. Um, it's a volatility index that we track. I won't get into right now, but if it stays elevated at the levels it's at right now, expect more intraday moves of one, two, three, even 4%. And it doesn't mean it's down. always to the downside. Yeah, it could be up or down. Yeah, to, you know? it, it could be just know that this is the environment we're going to be in for the next couple of weeks. This is where we're at. Could get worse before it gets better. But we'll see how earnings come out the next couple of weeks. We'll definitely inform listeners what they're looking like. Yeah, uh, we'll get in more inflation numbers uh, in February and uh, March, just as a reminder, we want to start to see those inflationary indicators decelerate. We want to see inflation Not come down, go away, go up. We want to see earnings come in good. Correct. Yep. We want. Yeah, we want inflation to come down faster than interest rates go up. Yep. Okay. Um, so we'll leave it there. Thanks for everyone uh, listening to episode number one thirty four of the Independent Advisors Podcast, and we'll be back with you next week. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.